Yo, partnership alert, partnership alert, partnership alert. Living Corporate has a partnership with LinkedIn Learning, an American massive open online course provider that provides video courses taught by industry experts across a wide array of subjects. Now, the partnership is because Living Corporate has courses on LinkedIn Learning focused on diversity, equity, inclusion for leaders, career professionals, and anyone really looking to upskill themselves and be better allies. So make sure you check out our courses on LinkedIn Learning by clicking the link in the show notes. And let's just say you don't want to do that. You go to LinkedIn Learning on LinkedIn, search Living Corporate. We'll be right there. All right. Peace. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And hey, look, it is Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, Look, mental health is something that's near and true and real for me. As I think about like Living Corporate as a platform, right? Like if you don't know, we have a show uh, called The Break Room that's explicitly focused on mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks in uh, the context of the workplace. And it's been around for uh, a little less than a year, right? Um, I'm excited and thankful that it's hosted by black psychologists, psychiatrists, and therapists, all of them licensed, all of them PhD'd. Is that, is that a PhD, do you say all of them who have PhD, all of them doctor doctorized, you know what I mean? All of them are, all of them went to school for this, right? Uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm thankful for the break room. And honestly, if you've listened to living corporate, like, you know, that we've been talking about mental health and wellness, like even before the break room started. Um, but I'm, I am thankful for that show. And I'm, and I'm thankful that we have a space here at living corporate to have authentic conversations about mental wellness, mental health. And I'm really also thankful that I was able to have Dr. Coleman on the show for um, our discussion today, for the the dialogue we were able to, to have. And the reason why I'm excited is not only because of her background, but because Dr. Coleman was actually my therapist. Um, and we talk a little bit about why she became my ex-therapist in the conversation. So that's your little... Uh, encouragement to listen. <laughs> but Dr. Coleman is a friend. Um, she's definitely loved and appreciated. And, you know, I don't want to even like belabor this intro too much longer because I really want y'all to hear this conversation. We talk a lot about just like the the implications of vulnerability um, for, for black folks at work and the double-edged sword uh, that comes with that. And or the double-edged sword that that is, excuse me. And we also talk a bit about like the function and like real definition around depression. We talk about anxiety. We talk about just like mental health. Like we talk about it. And I'm thankful that I have someone in my life um, that I could bring to you all to really like unpack that and have a fairly frank conversation about about mental health, especially within the lens or through the lens of um, 
a capitalist context in America, in the workplace. Um, and just the and the, the various challenges, the compounded challenges that are created by being one of the onlys um, at work and also dealing with mental health or managing your mental health at work. Right. So I'm excited about y'all checking out this conversation. I want y'all to hear it. Before we do that, we're going to tap in with Tristan. And then after that, you're going to hear me and Dr. Coleman. All right. See you soon. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. This week, I want to discuss questions to ask in an informational interview. When you're conducting informational interviews, you want to create a list of questions to help guide the conversation and solicit information to help you in your career or throughout your job search process. The questions you choose should show your contact that you have a genuine interest in their career, the company they work for, and the industry at large. But you also don't want to try and stump your contact, making them feel embarrassed or uncomfortable. Steve Dalton, the author of the book, The Two-Hour Job Search, provides a framework called the TR framework that helps structure your thoughts and help you better facilitate the conversation. Let's walk through it. First is trends. These questions help you get a bigger picture of the industry. A couple of examples of questions you might ask would be, what trends are most impacting your business or field right now? How do you think your business or field will change most dramatically in the next several years? Next is insight. The questions you ask here provide you with a better understanding of the position and employer. Here you can ask things like, what surprises you most about your job, your field, or your employer? What's the best lesson you've learned on the job? From there, you wanna ask questions focused on advice. By asking these, your contact can provide you with some strategy tips. These questions would look like, what can I do right now to prepare myself for a career in this field? What do you know now that you wish you would have known when you were in my position? The R stands for resources. These questions provide your contact with an opportunity to give you next steps. You might want to ask, what resources should I be sure to look into next? What next steps would you recommend for someone in my situation? The last A stands for assignments. These questions can guide things you may want to include in your resume, cover letter, LinkedIn, or interview answers. A few examples are, what project or projects have you done that you felt added the most value? Have any projects increased in popularity recently at your organization? This framework positions your contact as an expert and allows your conversation to shift in tone and depth. This helps increase the chances that you will turn them into an advocate for you. Thanks for tapping in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice that you think may help others. So make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash tap in Tristan. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash T-A-P-I-N-T-R-I-S-T-A-N. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Dr. Coleman, how are you doing? I am exceedingly better today than I was a week ago, for sure, and for most of last week. That is, that is accurate. You know, it's... Yeah, you know, um, I did the intro or whatever. Um, you know, I'm thankful that 
we're having this conversation, I've been thinking about um, having you on the pod. I remember when, you know, there was a mutual decision for you to stop being my therapist because of your involvement with living corporate as a company and the, the conflict of interest that that would create. Um, but I also am thankful that I've, I've grown to gain a friend and someone who is just as qualified as they were before they were before they were my friend as a therapist now because we can still have conversations even though they're not in the context or the relational context of you being my therapist so i just want to thank you for being here oh thank you for for having me and that was a um that was a difficult decision like i still will sometimes think about um that with, with a sense of grief right like oh that was I felt like our work together was really impactful, um, and and I, every client that I decide to work with, um, I do it with intentionality and genuine care. And so I know that it was the best decision for you, for me, for Living Corporate. I think the evolution has been wonderful, so I don't have regrets about the the decision. But it's one of those moments where, like, um, when you're in graduate school. And you're learning about ethics. And then as a professional, you have to get continuing education about ethics every every time to renew your license. But then when you got to live the ethics, it's always more complicated. So I'm glad that we're able to still have a really genuine, healthy, loving relationship, even though it's different than how we initially started working together. 100 um, percent. You know, and like to that end, we talked about the past couple of weeks, you know, I. You know, I'll say, Doctor Coleman, it's been it's been a ch- tough season. It's been heavy, and it's it's weird because like it's a it's an interesting um it's an interesting time. Sometimes I think like especially for like high performing black folks in corporate America, you know, I'll say for me like personally, my from a career perspective, I've been able to achieve a lot. Like the last year or so has been chock full of incredible successes. Um, development opportunities, um, relationship building opportunities, self-advocacy opportunities. Like it's been great. Um, my wife is, my wife and I expect another child. Um, oh, I didn't know that. That's so exciting. Oh, I forgot. I thought I told y'all. Yeah. So <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love it. So we're expecting, and she's, she's coming, she's coming, she's coming um, in October. And so, mm. yeah. And so it's been a lot of great stuff going on. And like, that doesn't change the fact that like the world keeps spinning and it doesn't change the fact that like outside, like, you know, in, you know, in light in paired with all of these really great successes in terms of like at my nine to five job, as well as living corporate and the growth that we're experiencing, um, that I'm still black in corporate America. And there's still mm-hmm. micro and macro aggressions that I'm dealing with all the time. Um, I, I I guess like where I guess I want to start is just is there something wrong with me? <laughs> no, no. There's everything right with you. Um, and I think this. So I talk about this a lot with my clients. You know, all my clients are black. Um, and uh, every all of my clients are black. All of my clients are high achieving, um, high functioning black folks. Right. There's not nearly enough psychological literature written about high functioning black folks and mental wellness. We said it's a whole different genre <laughs> that needs to be discussed. But so what that means is most of us are really attuned to 
the things that are happening on a macro level, but we're able to sort of metabolize that in a way that facilitates us continuing to function and do well um, professionally, academically, whatever. But then there's also this whole other part of like, we're feeling, engaging, thinking about all of the things that are happening. And sometimes it just doesn't line up very well. It's a, For me, what I always talk about, it's a very um, almost schizophrenic sort of mindset, right? Mm -hmm. the, the same thing is true for me in a lot of ways. I literally was thinking just yesterday, I have quantum leaped like three, it was just three years ago that I was burned out, depressed in academia. Zach, I used to pull up to the parking lot, cry in my car, tell myself to get it together, wipe my face off and go in the office and walk across campus like everything was great. And I was miserable. Yeah. But then I left and I went to corporate healthcare and then I was like, oh, y'all want some real fuck shit. Like, whoa, 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 I can't, I like this money, but you asking me to coon and I can't do that to now me being a full-time entrepreneur um, and being completely out of my element, but also loving it while yeah. we have all of this social political turmoil, while we have the most um, racial violent animus that in, in my lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm Gen X. And so we've never had this level of direct racial violence in my living lifetime. Um, along with the very real psychological warfare that white supremacy always has <laughs> on us is happening at the same time. And then these other things that are very real, like the shooting, um, and as a parent and, um, and then for me also, like right before that Roe v. Wade and thinking about, um, like literally this is a nation state that does not care about me as a human being. And I am trying to be and I am a human being trying to make, right. make make sense of this and be a parent and find joy. Like you should feel all of that tension because it doesn't all make sense. It's not a coherent picture. Um, and I tell even my clients, if you're not feeling anxious, if you're not feeling something, if you're not feeling overwhelmed at times, then you're not paying attention. You you, you literally, I, I would be more concerned about you if you weren't feeling that sort of schizophrenia like i don't even know another way to describe it yeah and i mean i think it like it's compounded by like like the like the the realities of like some of my diagnoses right like in terms of the mm -hmm. fact that like i have been diagnosed as depressed and um and bipolar and like mm -hmm. you know and like what does that mean as it pertains to just you know like how I interpret um, events that are happening abroad, quote unquote, as well as events mm -hmm. that are happening more locally with me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think about, I think about like, even like just the stigma around talking about your mental health or talk about your feelings. Like, let's pause on like, let me not even go as far as to say the word <laughs> mental health. Let me just start by your feelings. Your feelings. Um, yeah. My dad, my father, he tells me all the time, like, son, lead with your feelings that's the best way to get your feelings hurt right so mm. um and to compartmentalize right my dad is big on that uh, mm. my dad also my dad is also very transparent about um you know his history of of depression and, and and some of the the challenges that that have been on my father's side of the family i i think 
I think I'm in this season where like I'm trying to grow more comfortable talking about again, I'm not going to talk about I'm not going to say mental health yet. I'm going to just say I'm getting trying to grow more comfortable advocating myself and talking about my feelings mm-hmm. um in the workplace. But I'll be transparent and say I've also I'm, I also still have this fear and frankly I've had experiences um in in my 10 years of working where my candor and my feelings, me sharing my feelings um, are weaponized against me, right? Where 100%. 100%. What's the like I guess like look, you're you're the one with the PhD here. Like break walk me through the psychology of why there's a need to or not why there's a need to, but why I I because I don't believe this is some unique phenomena to me, right? I <laughs> I I continue to the older I get, the more I realize I am not the main character in the story, irrespective of how much it may feel like I, I or irrespective of how much I want myself to be. I'm confident that like, I'm not the only black person. Hell, I'm not the only person, but certainly not the only black person who deals with, um, deals with that. Can you talk to me about like the yeah. psychology of like, of, of, of weaponizing candor or weaponizing mm-hmm. um, feelings? Yeah. So I, I used to talk about this, what you're talking about is like catch 22 racism. Like, it's set up such that you damned if you do and you damned if you don't. Because the paradigm is set up such that, that you're going to lose either way. You don't talk about your feelings. They're going to say you're disconnected, you're cold, you're angry, you're aloof, you're not a team player, you're not a trusted entity, all the other stuff that comes along with that. And then you do talk about your feelings and you're unstable. You're, they're not sure if you, you can handle things. That, uh, what's your capacity mm, that you're sort of being manipulative? You can't win as a black person in the corporate space. I, I that has that was and <laughs> has been my experience. The way I think about the that um, phenomenon that you're talking about is, um, I think black folks, w- w- whether we want to fully acknowledge our Africanness or not, um, we are just culturally socialized, and I believe almost inherently more full people in experiencing the complexity thereof, right? So I'll think, I'll talk personally. I used to have these conversations at work with another Black faculty member, and it would be Black person talking to Black person, and sometimes the conversations would, would on the outside be heated. We would disagree. We would take different viewpoints. We would go back and forth, and you could feel the energy shift in the room where the white folks mm-hmm. around the table would get really anxious and really like, what's happening? And try to do a lot of like peacekeeping, trying to you know stifle the conversation. And me and him would be like, we're cool. Like, like we're good. <laughs> we're going to go have lunch right. after this. Um, right. So I think we have just a more inherent, robust capacity to sit in the both end. And I think mm-hmm. white folks don't do that well. I think part of how they maintain supremacy in culture is to be divested from their feelings, to compartmentalize. Like work is work. And there's a level of um, geniality that you need to d- display at work. But there's a level of authenticity that is also just expected. And so when you talk and name the thing that is happening, they don't have a cultural context and and or set of language to handle that. It, and it really does feel threatening to them. It feels disconcerting to them because that's not their worldview. And so then you sit there looking isolated, which even heightens your emotional awareness 
because you can't be in close proximity to white supremacy and not have emotional intelligence about white supremacy. Like that's part of what black people do from the beginning is like recognizing when something is happening, recognizing when discrimination, recognizing that I need to be aware of what's going to happen in this conversation. I need to think two, three steps ahead. I need to make sure I'm aware of the energy in this space because that's our survival. And I think the other thing that I hear you saying is, so now I have these diagnoses, right, that are impacting my um, brain. They also impact my capacity to interpret interpersonal experiences or just my overall worldview, right? One of the things we know about depression is the reason why we don't just call it sadness, why we call it depression is because it does have this ability to mute your your cognitive processing, meaning it has this ability to sort of uh, skew you towards the negative, right? So you do see more threat. You do, do see fewer possibilities for resolving. There is a sense of hopelessness, right? So if you have that on top of all of this other very real <laughs> context that I'm describing, it can feel really, really heavy. It can feel really, really heavy. Um and I think this is why talking about it more um, openly in all sorts of spaces, why going to therapy, why considering meditation, medication, meditation, right? Like, I think it becomes really, really imperative for us to be um, actively engaged in all of the components of wellness because without one of them, you're still, you're like barely treading water, right? You, you have to attend the sleep, the eating well, the working out, the meditation or prayer, the spiritual connection, the sex, the love. Like you have to be intentionally pulling from all of these positive light sources because there's so much negative stuff pulling at you as well. The thing about it is like it. So here's the thing. I, I receive all of that. Like intellectually, I get it. I think mm-hmm. I wonder like how much that can is the, how how much how reconcilable that is like with this like capitalist context where we're constantly driven and pushed to like produce and work like hey we have a job to do no like you need to we have a job to do you need to get to it and then like the and again that capitalist context is like that's a that's a context that that applies to everybody save like mm-hmm. a very small percentage of white elite men that we don't even know about, frankly, um, or a handful that we see in public, but the most of we don't even know exists. And so, it, I, so I bring that, I say that to say, like, I think about my time, like in corporate America, like I am constantly um, prioritizing delivery and execution and just performance and urgency and, accountability and um, all these things that I've been told I need to prioritize so that I can make money to have secure quote unquote security to be successful. Mm -hmm. And I think, and, and so what happens is even though in reality, my job is only one portion of my life, it ends up feeling like all of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I and I think that's common. I think that's more mm-hmm. common than not for for black and brown folks. Um, you know, I think about you know there are times like when my when I'm doing well at my job, I feel like I'm on top of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, when things aren't going like I'd like them to go, I feel like my whole world is falling apart. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so I guess, so I bring that up to say like, what what is the solution in these contexts where I, I do believe we're conditioned and encouraged for 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 work to be our lives. Now, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, before before I hand it off to you, I'll say this is that is significantly less so the case now that I've pivoted out of consulting. But you know, like tech is not ex- tech is not immune to that. The tech industry is not mm-hmm. immune to that. Uh, but I'm more so thinking about professional services. But still, like work, like just like mm-hmm. how do how does one like what's the reconciliation there? Yeah. So one, I think that's I think just leaving it at this current expression of capitalism is is sufficient, right? Like the industry and the specific uh, context that you're in really doesn't make that big of a difference. (laughs) Um, Mm. And for me, I just go all the way back to like March, April of 2020, right? When COVID hit and the world sort of like froze. I think that was such an eye-opening, like revelatory moment of like, Oh, all we do is work. Like we literally are not whole and full beings. We are just working to produce so that we have a couple hours on the weekend to re recoup, maybe sleep, do a fun activity or two, maybe get a week or so of vacation off. Right. So one, I think it's also very American because Europe Europe is westernized and even parts of South America is westernized, but they don't go hard on the pro- productivity and sacrifice of self in the same mm. way that we do. So one, that lets me know there are other ways to do this thing that we that we do. Um, but I think to like really answer your question, I don't know that reconciliation is possible. What I think is, um, what I think is an an avenue for change is to <laughs> not, not flippantly, but do something different. I think I think it requires you to intentionally go against the grain, and that means intentionally thinking about what parts of your current experience, are you willing to sit in more discomfort about or sacrifice? Meaning you can't continue to produce, be accountable, excel in the ways that you are currently doing and be a whole self. So if the decision is to be a whole self or at least get closer to a healthier, more present, more grounded version of self, then something over here has to shift. Because there's only, you know, so much energy and time and space. So something over here has to shift. And I think that's part of the hard questions that we need to really be asking ourselves as individuals. What part of all of this that I'm doing in this corporate space, in this workspace, really serves me? And how much of the parts that don't serve me at all can I chip away from? Can I I get 1% of my energy and time back? Can I get 2% of my energy and time is there any space where I actually I've convinced myself I'm required to perform at a certain level, but might not actually be true? It might not be a lot of options on the table. Like you might not have a lot of degrees of freedom, but I think it requires shifting to that mindset um, as a way to feel a sense of harmony. I don't know if balance is even possible, but a little bit more a little bit less off kilter. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I don't honestly, in my current understanding and with the knowledge that I have, I don't know how it is possible for Black folks in particular to be fully healthy and perform at a high level in corporate spaces. 
Yeah, I haven't seen it happen. I, I just I'm like, out. I, like think about. Yeah. I was just gonna say if, if we think about like um, Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearings, right? Like, yeah. elite, 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 top of top of her game, right? And it was traumatizing to watch how white supremacy engaged her and attacked her professionalism and the things that were lauded for her were her her ability to take it. She sat through it so gracefully. She kept her composure. She was sharp, right? Well, those are all survival skills. There, There was nothing healthy about what we saw. She was just surviving on an elite level, but we've gotten so accustomed to that being the norm that we are really have convinced ourselves that surviving is thriving. Hmm. And I think that's so to that end, right? I think like what I realized as I, as you and I broke up from being therapist and patient and I continued to meet with, <laughs> I started meeting with Dr. Cannon is I realized that mm-hmm. so so much of what I've been doing my career has been like high functioning survival, right? And it's hard for folks to imagine that when like I show up and I'm like smiling and I'm like dynamic and I come across and I am confident, but the confidence and all these feelings Mm -hmm. around like my performance, these are things that are, again, like mechanisms of survival. Yeah, I'm confident because if I'm not confident, then I'm not going to be seen as competent, which then means I won't be able to take care of my family. Right. And so like all of it is very Mm -hmm. um, transparently fear driven in certain ways. Um, There's purpose there. Mm -hmm. Like, don't get me wrong. Like there's purpose there. Mm -hmm. And, and, And all of this is just complex because there's still fulfillment in the work that I do. And at the same time, there's a very real reality that I see that if I am not, showing up in certain ways, then that directly impacts mm-hmm. the means by which I'm able to provide for my family and I'm able to provide for, yeah, you know, just I'm able to move around. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, you know, like, go ahead. I was just going to say, but, but that, that is the high stakes. Like when people talk about, um, you know, that sense of survival is so real. I like I would hear people talk about like, uh, well, black folks not not everybody is going to be in the streets marching. Not everybody's going to be willing to put themselves in front of the police or armed state or whatever, right? Um, not everybody's going to be on the front lines attacked by the dogs and hoses, right? But the mm-hmm. reality is, I don't know how you survive as a black person without having a constant threat to your livelihood, right? In my, it, it's either proximal or it's distal, but it's very much there because we don't have generational wealth built in. So if you decide for my mental wellness, I have to step away, right? Literally, it's going to be this job or me. And you choose me. It ain't that it, the, the coffers are not that deep for you and Candace and the babies to continue to live the life that you are living now um, without engaging in this very sort of violent and toxic system. So for me, it is caught up in our survival, right? Um, you know, we a couple of paychecks away from, ooh, ooh, this house about to go into foreclosure. <laughs> and that is the reality of the vast majority of Black folks. No matter how good all of these vacations we take and put on Instagram and TikTok look, like the vast majority of us are like in debt and trying to just do all the things that we've been told is a healthy and full life. 
Um, and so I don't, I, one of the things I want to offer to you though, is that where you are in your development is also critical, right? You're still early, technically early career-ish. Um, you've gone really hard, really fast out the gate. That is not true of most people. Uh, and so there, there's that component as well. And then where you are in your um, chronological age, where you are with the, the age of your children and your family, things are more um, precarious, right? Um, than maybe if you were at a different place and stage in life. The last thing that I was going to say, because I think this is really, really important, is the where I think we, the collective we as Black folks, go wrong all the time, is that I think a lot of us start off where you are. I'm, I may be ideal in this, right? Where you have a sense of, I'm, I'm um, wanting to excel for my own best, right, in this career, but I also recognize like I have something to lend to my community. I have something to give back. I am the work that I do serves a bigger purpose than just me and my family. And so you do all the things and you hit all the benchmarks and some of us actually get promoted. Where we continue to go wrong is we then just regurgitate the same capitalist white supremacist stuff that was inflicted on us. So the game never changes. So we work to get all of this quote unquote power and leverage a quote unquote seat at the table, but then y'all still don't say shit, right? Or you keep, you start saying what the, what the company line is. And I think that is where we all need to be held accountable to be a little bit more uncomfortable. I made a decision to be a full-time entrepreneur and that was the, one of the most scary decisions I've ever made in life. It was such a threat to ego, such a threat to my sense of security. Um, I am a full-time single parent. There is no generational wealth. I don't get um, child support. Like it, it's me and her solo dolo. And that was so scary to think about. Am I going to make this decision that feels really, really, really necessary for me? But that's going to jeopardize our life and her. Is that fair to her? And that so it was super, super scary. And I recognize that everybody can and will be an entrepreneur. So we have to figure out how to make these systems less violent and toxic for us. And the only way that I can think about that is how we then get get thoughtful about leveraging our power. I think we still work too much in silos, even when we're in corporate spaces. Like we have to start thinking about who we are as fundamental Black folks and where our roots come from. None of us are here because the civil rights movement was one person, because the Black power movement was one person. It was some collectivistic shit. And a lot of people sacrificed some stuff for us to be able to do this. And we got to get back in that mode or too many of us will become casualties to this current economic structure because it's not sustainable. Yeah, I mean, and and I also just like I mean to your point, like around like my profile and like and like what it, I mean, I can also acknowledge that I'm speaking from a position of relative privilege because I have um, what's the word mechanisms in place that if things were to stop, I could still be all right, right? Mm-hmm. Like I theoretically I could do my own thing right now. I don't want to because I would like to build wealth, but in terms of like not staying, but in terms of keeping the roof over my head and all that stuff like that's not a concern for me and so i recognize that like you know that's not but that's that's really not the reality for like the overwhelming majority of us in these um these workplaces it's just not Mm -hmm. right 
like we most of us most americans it's just it's wild because you think about like the average american is a couple checks away from being homeless like so yes. so so certainly the average black person is a check away from being uh, probably is less than two paychecks away from being homeless and so you look even you look at like just household median income by comparison you know we know the data we know what's we we know right and if we don't know then we'll put in the show, links you can learn yourself you can listen to old episodes of corporate we've talked about this several times over i think I think the other piece is like, let's talk a little bit about, so I started with feelings. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about like, just unpacking depression a bit. Um, mm-hmm. I was talking to, like I said, I was talking to someone else and we were talking about like, man, look, I did an audit on my life. I was like, look, my life is pretty great. Like, to be honest, like if I was to like objectively write down what's happening in my life. <laughs> my life is nice. Mm-hmm. And yet, like, there's times the wrong thing happens over here. I have the wrong conversation over there. I kind of get sucker punched over here. I get miscommunicated with over there. And everything just feels low, feels bad. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And like, and the person was like, look, what you're describing is depression because depression is not, oh, you can just logic your way out of this. Oh, life isn't that bad. So just you're fine. Like it's no, like it's like talk to like yeah. give me give me more about like because I, I I contend that most that a large overwhelming majority of black folks are frankly depressed. I, we don't talk about it. And I don't think mm-hmm. that we all like I, don't, I also don't think that you and I talked about this about a year ago is I don't know if we've all like. I don't know if we're, we're all taking advantage of like the insurance and things in places, because like if we all collectively went to mm-hmm. a psychiatrist, psychologist, and I know that's hard because it's hard for us to find them, but, and we all got diagnosed as clinically depressed mm-hmm. and then we all got medical leave and we all got some, <laughs> I feel like, that sounds like a dream. <laughs> right, like, I feel like, in, like the insurance, because it will be such a, it will be such a, a rush on insurance. I feel like everything, which is my, but anyway, again, yes, like yes, yes. I, I keep on saying depression, depression but I, can you talk a little bit about like unpack depression? Sure. Like what is it really? Sure. So, and so let me, so I'm going to talk about it in two ways. I'm going to talk about it from a, a con- bigger, bigger population of black folks, contextual perspective. What I think you're describing is a lot of what, I mean, when I talk about being in survival mode, one, we have to, we don't talk nearly enough about intergenerational trauma, but most of us are walking around with with the opportunity for depression or anxiety because um, they are very very close cousins, and and um, many of us experience a mix of that or experience one or the other more, right? But a lot of this is genetically linked, and a lot of it is also. Um, socially contextually linked right so 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 let me qualify it and say right i, I always talk about I, I literally i say i come from a line of anxious women the women in my family are anxious as hell i have an, an auntie that uh if she comes over to my house she can't sit still she she just constantly moving going she has to go outside and walk just to see like she just cannot be still in her body my mother tends to be um, lean more into depression as well, which I didn't even have language for as a kid, but I would, but now that I know, I would be like, oh, you were going through a depressive episode. That explains why you were in the dark in your room, not doing anything, right? Um, 
So a lot of us grow up with these things without ever having them been named and without ever having resources to be able to deal with them individually and or collectively. So you are inheriting um, stuff. So it is not just your stuff that you are carrying, but it is also generational stuff that you're carrying, compounded with <laughs> all the things that we've just spent some time talking about, right? So then um, the experience of depression, I think um, the biggest disservice that depression has had done to it is like having the face of a white wealthy woman as depression, right? So someone who can afford to stay in bed for days on end in the dark room and not be able to move and that we think that's what being depressed is. And the reality is most of us are high functioning depression, meaning we can get up and go to work and do the things, but it is a, a, a very heavy cognitive load. So that piece that you're talking about, if one thing takes you off your square, it feels like the whole, it feels like an avalanche, right? Because your cognitive load is working, your brain is working at its highest capacity to continue to keep you functioning, concentrating, um, your, your short-term memory to stay intact, your ability to synthesize, use your executive functioning, all of these things are working. And so at some point, the one thing that doesn't go right feels like it has just derailed your entire life. And that is because it is that one thing that has been the the overload of your cognitive load, right? So depression also looks like hopelessness. So people oftentimes don't necessarily want to kill themselves. They don't have an active suicidal plan, but there's this very real sense of, I just want it all to stop. I just really want all it all to end. I really, if I could just get a pause on all of this so I could catch my breath. I feel like I can't even concentrate or figure out what's my next move because I'm constantly reacting so I can keep my head above water. That's what depression really looks like for a lot of Black folks. And the other really dangerous part about depression is this negative mindset that I was talking about before. So our brains are already um, skewed against us. Our brains are developed for us to see more negative than it is positive because that's the way that our brains have developed over time to keep us safe. We look for danger, we look for threat so we can avoid it. And so then if you have a depressive mind state that is um, in place, so you have lower lower um, dopamine and you're going to have lower um, serotonin that's also functioning. And so these are the things that your brain needs to be able to sort of keep you emotionally above the fray to be able to say, oh, wait, no, that's not actually a bear coming to get me. It's just a, it's just a kitten in the walkway, right? But the depression is like, this that same damn cat that's always fucking with me is probably gonna tear up my lawn. Like the, 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 the depression just makes you go there, which is an additional emotional labor, additional cognitive load. And it really can, um, really creates, this is the way I talk about it with my clients. It creates this really negative inertia, right? So so it, it, all, it feels like something is constantly pulling you back. And the reason why we talk about medication and meditation and going to therapy is because you need all of those things to sort of get you out of the rut, to get you with some forward momentum, because the depression is actually wanting to keep you quiet, slow, under, dark. Like, those are the ways that I think it's healthier, more functional to talk about depression than sadness. There's sometimes sadness and there's sometimes crying, but it is a much heavier overall um weightedness to experiencing through the world but sometimes even physiologically it can feel like you are trudging through um 
just to get through the day. And then you go to work, you do all the things, you're reactive, you're able to handle things, your brain is processing, you're smart, you do all of that. And at the end of the day, you crash. And then you wake up in the morning and get to do it all over again. <laughs> and at the end of the day, you crash. And you wake up in the morning, you do it all over again. So it becomes really dangerous when you don't have anyone or anything intervening. So I'm gonna uh, say this, and then we'll, and then we can we'll, we'll start we'll start landing the plane. You know, it's interesting you talk about like again like the brain being more oriented towards the negative for the sake of survival. The the jacked up part, and you and I've talked about this before, is my critical assessment of things is often right. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's not like oh Zach you were overthinking that or oh Zach you were overreacting or you were being too negative or you being too critical. It's that I'll I'll assess it, whatever it is mm-hmm. I'll clock it, and then you know insert time later and that thing becomes what I said it was, mm-hmm. which then which makes it tough right like to feel like well damn like I should be on guard because I was right I keep on being right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so like, what would you say in that to that? So I think the function of therapeutics of any kind is to be able to look for alternative avenues outside of the path that you right. So what I like, that's the metaphor I, I hear is like, I see the shit coming down the walkway. Mm-hmm. I know eventually I'm going to run into it, right? But working to be therapeutically engaged with your depression and your your mental health, let's say mental health in general. Yeah. What it does is facilitate your ability to see turnoffs. Oh, actually, I'm going to go around the block and avoid this one, right? Oh, mm, I'm going to let him pass by while I dip into this building. When you are depressed, really, it, it becomes really sort of tunnel vision. And that's mm-hmm. the thing that I think energetically we also have to talk about is like the negativity begets the negativity. So you see it. So you're looking out for it more. So here it comes. And part of the the therapeutic way of doing something different is to be able to look for other ways, um, other alternatives, other safe havens, right? Then feeling like, well, I've just got to keep going on this path until I run into this thing that I know is a problem for me. But you, but it, but it's exceedingly difficult when you are depressed. And I, I have struggled with my own depression. I remember a couple of years ago, I was like, yeah. I, and and mine is not, mine is pretty seasonal, but it's heavy seasonally. And so I remember thinking, I think I'm going to have to get on some medication because this is not feeling very good. So I go to just my physician and she gives me the depre- uh, depression like screener. <laughs> and even with me acknowledging, I don't think I'm in a good place. And then when I looked at the screener and I was like, oh, ma'am, uh, you're in a really bad place. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so that objective, external um, ability to sort of see it uh, becomes really important. And I think that's where the role of, of therapy can really come in. Um, and and sometimes, again, um, I'm a proponent of medication of the right kind and the right dosage for the right person. I think you're right to also be careful that Black people, particularly Black men, tend to be over-medicated. Black women tend to be under-medicated when we come to talk about uh, mental health diagnoses. And so, you know, learning, knowing that in advance and learning how to be an advocate for yourself and doing your own research is also really, really important too. So let me ask this question to land the plane a bit. You know, it's it's easy. I think like again, like capitalism is so nasty. Like just and a friend of mine named Eric E. Mike is one of my closest friends. He he texted me this one day and I was like, that's kind of fire. He said, uh, he said capitalism is white supremacy in action, right? It's 
it's mm-hmm. like white supremacy was a verb, it would be capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, and so it's interesting to see like how um, capitalism has like permeated in the wellness industry to like frame, and there, there are people who are much more um, qualified to talk about this at length than I. I'm curious to get your reaction as an expert um, mm-hmm. in this space. So they they frame wellness as a means to sharpen and improve productivity, as opposed mm-hmm. to um, as opposed to a virtue that should be nurtured for the sake of just better being. Um, mm-hmm. What are some things? What are some things that you would advise to kind of be wary of that are framed as wellness, but just as like more fancy? or um or genteel capitalism <laughs> yeah so so that's the thing about capitalism right anything can be commodified and packaged and sold and then we add our own little uh human spin on it to differentiate the elite from the mainstream from the you know cheap or lesser thing right so my basic answer to this is anything that's genuine wellness is free sleep is free meditation is free Eating well is not free, but eating like you don't have to pay anybody to know that if I eat more fruits and vegetables and and raw food and like things that are actually living, I'm probably going to be healthier. Right. If you have to pay somebody for some crystals or a particular uh, formula of shake or peel um, or regular consultations for I don't know what. That's probably not. I'm not saying those things don't have merit and that we can't benefit from them, but I don't think they need to be your go-to things for wellness, right? And so what I encourage people to think about is wellness is not the absence of disorder. Wellness is your ability to operate in an optimal state. Hmm. So what are the things that you need to be able to operate in an optimal state, not just, it's it's like um, an athlete operating in their prime versus um, being on the field, taped up and ice, icing themselves in between um, quarters, you can still get the job done, but it's causing a lot of impact on your body. And wellness is I'm really operating from my optimal state. Like this is I, I can jump this high in this body be, without any impediment. I can run this fast in this body without any impediment. And you think the same way about your overall wellness. Dr. Coleman, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I appreciate you um, joining me for it. And before we let you go, I want to make sure that people know about the break room. Can you talk a little bit about the break room? Yes. So first of all, thank you for having me. Um, You know, one of the things I enjoy is just talking and talking about this stuff. I think we can't continue to have these conversations enough because... um, there's many things that need to be heard over and over again for us to be able to activate them, right? And that's what we try to do at The Break Room. So The Break Room is a podcast with myself, um, Dr. Brian Dixon and Dr. Jide Bamashigbin. Um, and we are a podcast focused on Black folks' mental wellness in the workspace. Um, and we try to talk about all of these things, about about depression, about anxiety, about allyship, about capitalism, about rest and wellness, about celebration and joy, and all of those things and its impact on your ability to be your healthiest self. Um, because really we have to bring our whole selves to the workplace. 
I love it. Dr. Coleman, you're appreciated. You're loved over here. Of course, you're a friend of the show. You're part of Living Corporate. And let's make sure we talk soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thank you, Dr. Coleman. Peace. And we're back. Listen, I want to thank Dr. Coleman again. I want to thank uh, the break room. I want to thank our team, right? Mental Health uh, Awareness Month is coming to an end. This is the last day of May that you're listening to this. And I hope that you realize that mental health matters, not just in May, but it's a it's a day to day, minute by minute journey, second by second journey. And, you know, to that end, my hope, if you're listening, to this is to be gentle with yourself. Be gentle with yourself. Start with yourself. Right. Be gentle with yourself. I'm going to say it again. Be gentle with yourself. We're in a, a tumultuous season for a variety of different reasons that we talked about in our conversation. Um, but there's a bunch of factors that come in that um, encourage us to not be gentle with ourselves. And in these moments where the world seems most harsh is really um, the cue that you need to be more gentle. So again, be gentle with yourself. And then my next encouragement would be, would be to be gentle with one another, right? Like there are certain things that are going on in your life that no one knows about, um, that you carry into the workplace every day. And just like there are things that you're barely holding on to and you're really trying to keep it together every day. There are things that other folks are carrying and they're barely holding on to, right? You have no idea. Like part of that gentleness is informed by the fact that we're all in some way or another hanging on by a couple threads, right? Some of us less threads than others. And so just be mindful of that. And if you need help or you feel like you need some resources or anything like that, like click the links in the show notes. There's resources for you. And um, listen, This has been Zach with Living Corporate. Make sure you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for journeying with me. Thank you for being a fan. Thank you for for just being here. All right. Catch you next time. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.